0: Well, good morning, Valley Bible Church. It's great to see you. Thank you for joining us on our online platform here. We are so thankful and grateful that we have a platform like this that still allows us to meet at a time like this. And if you're a guest with us for the first time, I just want you to know we are so honored and privileged that you would view this service. We are very thankful that you would give us kind of the honor to, to be speaking into your home right now. And, and we are really excited to be right in the middle of a three-part series. We're right there in week number two. We're unpacking this series called Our Story. And, and the whole goal of this series is really to do kind of three things. I want to tell a little bit of my story, and, and I want to tell God's story, and I want to tell your story at the same time. Now that may sound a little ambitious and you may think, well those are three different stories, but what we're finding as we go through this series is this is all one grand story, one large story. It's, it's our story and, and what we're doing to kind of unpack this is we're really seeing how these all kind of come together and what we're finding is how do we fit in these stories? What characters do we play in this grand and large story? And we're also seeing how this is going to shape the future of our church's story, of Valley Bible Church's story. So what we're doing in this series is we're unpacking one chapter in the Bible called Luke 15. Luke 15. And in this chapter, Jesus tells three of my favorite stories. Three stories that really are telling one story. They're telling the large story of God and man and how all of that works together. And and in these three stories, there's three parts. In each story, there's something that is lost, there's someone that is searching, and then there is a party when that something is found. And we looked last week at the something lost. This told us the character that we play as, as humanity. We play the thing that is lost. We are, we are victims and villains at the same time. We are the damsel in distress, and at the same time, we're the dragon. There's a sense in which we need rescue from ourselves, and Christ is our rescuer. Well, this week, we're going to focus on someone searching, someone searching for what is lost. So to start our conversation, let me ask you this question. I want you to entertain this for a moment here. When we think of someone searching, ask yourself this question. Do we search for God, or does God search for us? Now, that may sound a little bit odd, and if you're familiar with the Bible, you could maybe rattle off some scripture in your head saying, well, I know we make movement toward God, and and I know that God makes some movement toward us. Maybe you think to yourself, well, faith and repentance, those are two things the Bible talks about, and that's movement toward God. Well, what about God's movement toward us? See, the Bible gives a lot of emphasis to that idea, that God seeks us out, that God chases us down, that God is searching for us. Now, that sounds a little bit odd, if you think about it, because God has, is of such higher status than us, and we are of lower status, and so it seems strange, awkward, and weird to think that someone of higher status would search out someone of lower status. I mean, if you just think of it in the, in the idea of a, a celebrities. Celebrities don't buy Hollywood maps to find your house, right? We buy the Hollywood maps to find their houses. We try to get pictures with celebrities, but celebrities don't try to photobomb us or, or get into our selfies. That's not how it works. You, but see, but for God, it's a little different. I don't, I don't know, maybe in talking about spiritual things, you've said something like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm searching things out. I'm trying to find my path. I'm curious about God. But have you ever said something like, man, I feel like God is pursuing me? No, that, that sounds awkward. It sounds weird. And I, I'm going to take it a step further. I think it sounds scandalous. Scandalous. Why? Because God is not just higher than us. is holier than us. You see, we are impure. We are full of faults. We lack in many things, but God is pure. He has no faults. He lacks in nothing. For God to come down to us, to search for us, is not like somebody moving from first class to second class. It's like somebody moving across enemy lines. It's scandalous. It it breaks the mold, the status quo, what's expected, what people feel comfortable with. And I want to show you that this is the kind of setting that Jesus tells these stories in, that Jesus has created a scandal. Jesus has created a controversy. Jesus has created a public outrage. That word scandalous means public outrage because a standard or an expectation has not been met. And that's exactly how Jesus pursues and searches out those that are lost. I want to show you this in Luke chapter 15. Before we get there, let me give you the big idea for today. So if you're only going to take one sentence down, you're going to write one note down, you're going to put one thing into your phone. I want you to type this into your phone or write it down on a napkin or something near you. This is the big idea for this morning. Grace Runs at a scandalous pace. Grace runs at a scandalous pace. Now again, I said that, that term scandalous may may strike you a little differently, and that's intentional. I want that to stick with you here, but it's not just because I want it to stick with you. I want you to see that this is exactly the way we should describe what Jesus is doing in Luke chapter 15. That Jesus comes on the scene and he is causing a public Outrage. He is making everyone feel uncomfortable. He is breaking the status quo. He is disruptive to expectations. Let's look at that in Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. We looked at this last week, but it's very important to always understand the setting of these stories. And we'll jump into them, but let's look at the setting again. Luke chapter 15, verse 1 says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now we saw in Luke chapter 5, Jesus uh, took the invitation of a man named Levi. Levi invited him to come over to his house. Levi was a tax collector, and Jesus enters into his home, and he eats with this tax collector, and there's other tax collectors there. Now, tax collectors of the day, and we looked at this last week, were, were hated by the religious leaders and many of the Jews at the time. They were seen as, as representatives and greedy representatives at that of the oppressor Rome. Nobody liked these guys. Everyone saw them in their job title as sinful. And yet Jesus responds to an invitation, goes to their house. But here Jesus has stepped it up even more. More than just going to their house, Jesus is inviting them in. More than just being kind to hospitality, Jesus is extending hospitality. This is the difference between going to a birthday party and and asking somebody to come to your birthday party. And what is happening? It's causing an outrage, a grumbling here. So Jesus takes this moment knows his audience, knows their grumbling, knows the scandal, the controversy, the unconventional way at which he's operating, the uncomfortable way they feel at the moment. And Jesus says, I want to tell you some stories. And Jesus is going to give us these three stories, and we're going to see in these three stories that big idea unpack itself. Grace runs at a scandalous pace. The first two stories are going to tell us about grace running, God taking an active role to search us out, to hunt us down, if you will, to, to go after us. And then that third story is going to tell us the pace at which he does this and that pace being scandalous. So let's look at the first story and really kind of unpack the idea of how God runs after us, how God's grace runs after us. The first story Jesus tells is about a shepherd. Let's pick up in verse 4. It says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Now, I remember reading this for the first time when I was a Christian, just starting out as a teenager. And, And when I first read this passage, I felt so bad for the sheep that got left. I felt bad for the 99. My heart was burdened for the 99. I honestly thought to myself, what a foolish shepherd. What an ironic move here. So you run after one sheep. You have so much concern and and, and so much care and so much love for this one sheep over here. You're willing to abandon 99. Aren't they all going to lose themselves? Isn't this ironic here that you're chasing after one only to lose 99 more? You're solving a small problem, but creating a bigger problem. And we can read it like that at times when we first glance over it, but I do not think that's how we should read it. I do not think that's how Jesus' first century hearers would hear this story. We shouldn't assume that these sheep are in danger, that they've been abandoned, that they've been left behind. I don't think that's the right way to read this or to hear this. I think it's very safe to assume that the shepherd would leave a friend or a family member kind of in charge of guarding these sheep. And why do I say that? It's because the point that Jesus is making here is not to paint the shepherd as this foolish person, as this kind of ignorant man that doesn't know how to care, this kind of man who only acts in an ironic way to undo what he's trying to do in a bigger way. Save one, lose 99. Take one step forward, take 99 steps backwards. That's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is what? To show the concern, the compassion, the significance that these sheep have for the shepherd. We should assume, and I think it's fair to say, that these 99 are found. They're safe. They're in no danger. But the shepherd is not satisfied when 99 are safe because one is lost. So he must search until he finds. An illustration of that could be simply this. If I were to go on a family vacation and, and we stopped at a rest stop and, and one of the kids got left behind and as we're driving our minivan away and we're 10 miles, maybe 15 miles away, my wife looks at me and says, where's, where's one of our kids? Where's, where's Maddox? Where's Dexter, right? Picking a name and, and then I looked at her, well, you know, babe, three out of four ain't bad. That is not going to calm the heart of my wife. And that should not be my posture as a father. This is the significance here. Losing one means a lot. And the shepherd will not stop searching. Just as I would not stop searching that rest stop until I found my lost son or my lost daughter. So, So too, we see this in the compassion of the shepherd. He searches, it says, until he finds. Now I know and I'm sure you could admit yourself too that you have lost many things in your life. I know I have lost many things in my life and there's some things that I've lost that I will never find, that I have never found. But there are certain things, my wallet, my keys, my phone, certain things that I have lost that I always search until I find. I do not give up. Look at how this same kind of posture is in the woman who loses the coin. Look at the second story here. This is verse 8. Or what woman having ten coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Now what's being described here, kind of very similar to what we've seen. Now I think Jesus is, again, as we looked at last week, Jesus is is bringing up the value of significance here. He moves from 1 and 100 to 1 and 10. So he's lowered the ratio, making it more significant the thing that was lost. I think Jesus does the same thing when it comes to the description of how this person, this character, searches. You see, the shepherd did two things. One, he left the 99, and second, he went out to find the one. But here, the woman is described as doing three things. And those three things are described in even a fuller way. It says first that she lights a lamp. And why does she do this? Well, in the first century world, uh, many of the homes would have no windows, or if they had any windows, they'd be very small windows. So if you're going to do a search, you need to light a lamp even in the daylight. Then it says she sweeps the floor. What is she doing here? She's sweeping the floor probably hoping to maybe hear the coin before she sees the coin. Maybe the coin is caught in some debris or in a crack in the floor. And if she brushes it, she can, she can hear it as it makes that metallic noise. She can hear it and say, oh, it must be over here somewhere. Then it says she searches diligently. I, I imagine this woman lifting up couches, moving furniture, going through the trash, opening the dryer, all the crazy things you do when you lose something, opening the fridge. I can't say how many times I've put stuff in the fridge, making an exchange or you know a switch from a soda and put my wallet in there for some reason, right? Those things happen. This is what this woman is doing. She is seeking diligently she doesn't give up she doesn't look and say well i can't find it no big deal right if i'm honest that's what i do sometimes there are times where my wife will ask me paul can you can you get the syrup out of the cabinet say it's a saturday and we're making waffles like we'd love to do on saturday mornings and my wife will ask me paul go get the syrup it's in the cabinet so i'll open up the cabinet and it's not there and I'll go to my wife and say, you know what, hon, it's not there. I don't know what to do. And then my wife, and you may not know this about her, but she's a wizard because she can open up the same cabinet and voila, there's the syrup. Now, I think it's a magical ability that she is just cloaking for me to keep the wizard world from being revealed to us. And then all that kind of mayhem that would happen. But really the way she phrases it is this. She'll ask me this very poignant question. She'll say, did you Paul look? Or did you Lindsay look? And if I'm honest, the answer is I often Paul look. And a Paul look is only good if it's right in front of your face. Only if it's right there. A Lindsay look is you look and you move things. You search through. You keep going. This is what's being described here. Is, is the shepherd and the woman are looking not a Paul look, but a Lindsay look. Intently Until they find. What does this tell us about God's grace? It tells us that God is active. God is not passive. God is not waiting to be found. He is seeking to find us. He is searching. He is chasing after. God is not the cheese in a mouse maze waiting to be found. God is like a bloodhound. He is seeking. He is searching. He is running. He has lost something and he must find it. God is active in his pursuit of us. And how does God pursue us? What is the pace at which God, which God chases us down? How is God looking for us? How is God searching for us? The next story tells us he does it at a scandalous pace at a pace that is outrageous, a pace that is unconventional, a, 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 a pace that is not comfortable for the status quo, a, a, a pace that is not expected, a pace that will make the religious elite kind of feel uneasy, uncomfortable, make their skin crawl, and how God pursues those who are lost. Look how Jesus really brings this to the surface in his most emotionally charged moment of all three of these stories. Look in verse 20. Just to get us caught up from last week, in this story what we found is what was lost was not a coin or a sheep, but a son. And this son lost himself. He wasn't a a victim of rolling off a table, but he willingly chose to rebel against his father and he did it in a very disrespectful way. He went to his father and said, I want a third of your estate. I want my inheritance that I would get as a young son, as the second son. Give me that inheritance. And he took all of this money that he got from his father, essentially saying, Dad, I'm better off now that I'm acting as you are dead. In fact, my life would be better if I could just live on what I would get from your death. So disrespectful. Then he runs away to reckless living, as Luke describes it. And he ruins himself and finds himself empty-handed. But then he has a change of heart. He remembers the abundance and the love of his father. And he decides it's time to go back. Luke says that he he comes to his senses. And so he's going to go back to his father. And he has a, a, a speech that is pinned out. And he rehearses it before he gets there. And he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to confess my sin. And I'm going to beg for mercy. And I'm going to ask my dad, Dad, will you just make me a low servant? So he's journeying back to his father. And his father sees him from far away. Maybe at the city gates. And look at the reaction of the father. This is verse 20. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion on him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. What is happening here? We know a lot actually about this father, about this man. It says that he can see the son from far away, which means what? It means that he has an elevated vantage point which probably means that he lives on an estate in the hills. He, he lives with the upper class, if you will. We know he must have some sort of extravagant wealth because he throws a very extravagant party later on in the passage. We also know that he has many servants or his son's plea would not make sense. And somehow he has maintained all of this property and all these employees even after giving a third of his net worth away. I mean, how many people can lose a third of their net worth and still maintain a vast amount of employees and enough to throw an extravagant party? This man must be a very wealthy man, a man of means. He is living in the hills. He's probably a nobleman of his town, maybe one of the biggest employers in his community. This nobleman runs to his son. How scandalous. You see, in the first century world, for a man of his stature, of his status, a nobleman in the town would never run in public. Because the the clothes of the day would not allow himself to do it modestly. He would have to lift his garment, expose his lower part of his leg in order to run. And that's exactly what's happening here. But that would be a shameful thing. But think of what this father is doing. We know the distance is far away. It says, from long away, he saw his son and he ran. So we have this parade through town, running down Main Street. This man is shaming himself, exposing a part of himself that would be indecent to the people around him. It's a scandal. Nobody would expect this. It's almost like you can... You can hear with each, each footstep, each time he pounds the dirt as he chases after his son, a new rumor, a new murmur comes from the townspeople. Somebody peers out the window. They see the dirt flying up from his sandals, and they think to himself, wait, I know that guy. That's the boss. And the boss is shamefully running through the main street. And then it says, he embraces this son. This word picture is incredibly vivid here. It means that he fell into the neck of his son. Luke uses that same description in his second book, the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 20, Paul, the great missionary of the first century world, is is speaking to the believers in Ephesus. And he tells them, guys, my journey is going to get really hard. In fact, my future is going to be suffering and, and what we're having right now is, is a final goodbye. I'll never see you again, and I'm going to suffer. And it says these believers in Ephesus, they weep and they embrace him. That's the same word picture used here. They're weeping with Paul, and the father right here is embracing the son, it says, and kissing him. This is an emotionally charged scene here, and it is scandalous. Just think for a moment. Place yourself in the first century world. Place yourself as one of those townspeople, maybe employed by this nobleman. And you happen to live at where the son and the father's paths converge. And you see this this man with, with dirt on his feet and his lower calf. You see all this mess, and you heard the rumor of the mad nobleman running down the street, you see the embrace, you see the tears, you see him kissing this son, and you think to yourself, wait, I know this son. This is the rebellious fool who wasted all of his inheritance on shameful things, and now the boy has come back? After his pursuit was ruined? Okay, okay, take the boy in. But make him pay off his debts. Make him grovel for mercy. Make him get on his knees in the dirt. Maybe extend your hand to him. Have him kiss your hand as a sign of humility, as a sign of allegiance. But whatever you do, don't kiss him. Don't embrace Him. Yet this is exactly what the Father does. How incredibly scandalous. Well, the son pulls out his speech. I envision him with a three-by-five note card, his hand is shaking. He's about to deliver what he has practiced. Let's pick up the son's speech after these actions and this embrace from his Father. It says in verse Twenty-one, And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Verse 22. But the father said, notice here, the boy didn't get to his third point. He didn't get to that last part on the three by five card. His speech was cut off. That's not the full speech that he rehearsed that we saw last week in the passage. He was missing that line, that line that said, Father, I want to be a hired servant. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Let me be a hired servant. He didn't get to that line. Now, why is that? Well, maybe the possible reading of this should be that the son just got caught by the moment and he couldn't muster up enough emotional courage to do it. Another possible reading of it is that the father interrupted him. He didn't want to hear anything about this son asking to be a servant. I honestly think we can make a really good guess here based on just the emotional display from the father. I think it's fair to read this and say, no, the father interrupted the son. He would have nothing to do with this servant talk, nothing to do with this slave talk, Nothing to do with this idea that he's not family. The father strikes up his own speech. Not prepared, not like the son, but out of his heart. He speaks and his speech is as scandalous as his actions. Let's pick up the father's speech. He interrupts the son, verse 22. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The father makes this speech. And what does he say? Bring the robe Bring the ring, get the shoes. What is he doing? He's dressing his boy up and he's saying, no, you will not have the attire of a servant, of a slave. You will dress like a son because that's exactly what you are. Just think for a moment here how this should strike us based on what we know of this boy. He has already squandered a third of his father's wealth and these gifts are just another gift from that estate that remains that he did not yet spoil this boy just keeps receiving from the father it also says that he requests the servants to kill the fattened calf what's what's that mean you see to us in the 21st century world meat is so easily available for us and and so to to think of eating meat might be something that is Very regular, but in the first century world, it wasn't like that at all. Meat was rarely eaten. In fact, meat was saved for special occasions, and this very specific fattened calf was one that was prepared to be eaten much later. This was this was nurtured. This had a, a special diet. There was a moment for that calf to die, probably would be like a, a Jewish festival, like the Day of Atonement, something, something big. And this father has found an occasion to, to eat his best food. He, he's not saying, hey, son, jump in the pickup truck and let's go to in and out That's not what he's saying. He's bringing his son. He's saying, we're getting steak and lobster because it's time to celebrate. It's time to party. You are my son and you are back. Look at the, the language he uses to close all of this off. He says, my son was lost and now my son is found. Now that's nice. I mean, that's beautiful language there. The language of of reunification. But then he goes on to say to use words not lost and found, but my son was dead and is now alive again. This isn't just reunification. This is resurrection. This is how overjoyed the father is to see his boy back. It is like receiving the dead back. Wow. What does this tell us? Yes, God's grace runs after us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Jesus says when he speaks of his father in John chapter 6, he says, no one can come to the father. No one can come to me unless my father draws him. He speaks of the initiation of the father. Jesus used the same terminology even of himself in John chapter 10. He says, my sheep hear my voice. I call them. They know my voice and they follow me. Clearly God pursues us. God chases us down. And he does so at a scandalous pace. Yes, this father's actions were scandalous. He, he embraced the son. He kissed the son. But our heavenly father does more scandalous actions. More than running, embracing, and kissing a son. He sacrifices a son. He lays his son on the altar. And says, "This is what I give to gain more sons and daughters back." What a scandalous action. One of Jesus' closest followers, by the name of Peter, wrote in First Peter chapter three, said, "The righteous died." For the unrighteous. What a scandalous action. See, this is the uniqueness of God's story. The uniqueness of our story. The uniqueness of my story and your story. That in our story, in the large story, the grand story, the Bible story, the hero does not defeat the villain. The hero dies for the villain. Peter says the righteous die for the unrighteous. Christ dies for us, the rebels, those who were first called His enemies before they were called His friends. The Father has a scandalous speech. He speaks of of robes and and rings. But our Heavenly Father speaks of righteousness. Righteousness. Paul, that great first century church planner, said in Philippians chapter 3 that he has a righteousness not his own, a righteousness from God, not from the law. What is he describing there? He's saying, my righteousness is not a status that I have achieved, but it's a gift that I have received. God has called what is unrighteous, righteous. God has called the unjust just, not because they are that, no, only because he sees them as that, because he sees them in Christ. How scandalous would it be for a judge to call a guilty man innocent against a mountain of evidence from exhibit A to exhibit Z? If all the evidence was pre- presented and we all saw on a public courtroom the mountain of evidence th- displayed, even a confession. From the guilty party and the judge stands there supposed to be an interpreter of the law a balancer of justice and if he were to call a verdict of innocent on that guilty man we would say scandalous we would be outraged we would feel uncomfortable this would not be conventional this would not be appropriate yet this is exactly what the father does when he calls you me when he calls us righteous but he does it justly. Why? Because he sees more than just you, more than just me, more than just us. He sees us in Christ, and he calls us righteous because Christ is righteous. God's grace runs at a scandalous pace. I said in, in this series that I want to share my story a little bit, and my spiritual journey started with opposition. It started with anger. I always believed in God. The notion of God was, just seemed to always be in my mind, but it wasn't something that, that bothered me or that really changed how I lived until my father passed away when I was young, and, and then the notion bothered me. Then God bothered me. Then I was angry with him, and I would have these arguments in my head with him. These one-sided monologues that I thought I had the moral upper, upper ground on God that I could give a list of all reasons why he is not good. And I would argue with myself over and over and over again about God's qualifications and how he did not match up, how his resume was no good. I hated God, opposed God, was delighted to find holes in his character. And God did not wait for me. God did not wait for me to come to him. God did not wait for me to move to him. God sent a father figure into my life. A father figure has become so important in my life, I call him my father. God sent an African-American basketball coach who loved Jesus to an angry, poor, white kid who hated Jesus. (laughs) How scandalous. How unexpected. How unconventional. And I remember him sharing his faith with me. I remember him praying over his meals, and I thought it was silly. I remember him inviting me to church. I remember going with him to church. I remember sitting in a very uncomfortable seat, this pew, which I'd never seen. In any other building before, but apparently in churches, this is what they create. These very hard wooden things that make anybody uncomfortable. Even the person with perfect posture steps away with scoliosis. I was sitting there in this kind of uncomfortable pew, listening to these boring sermons about a God I did not like, watching all of these people embarrass themselves with singing songs to a God who I thought was deficient. What an odd place to be for me. But it's exactly where God wanted me, because God was chasing me down. I could not shake the spiritual. I could not look past the genuine faith of those people singing. I could not look past the words of that pastor. I could not look past the compassion of that basketball coach. And I remember the day when all those songs that they would sing and all the sermons that I heard and all the conversations that Bobby had with me started to join in to those arguments in my head, started forming counter-arguments to everything that I said. And I remember on April 4th, 1997, God's truth Won that argument. How scandalous to save a young boy who hates you. How scandalous of God to save a young boy who hated him. But this is our God. He runs after us at a scandalous pace. I said that as we unpack these stories, we'll see how this shapes the future of our church here, Valley Bible Church. Valley Bible Church has always been a church that runs at the pace of the Father. I remember when I first encountered this, when I came on staff in 2009, when I was first here as a youth pastor, I remember coming in fresh out of grad school, excited to have my first ministry uh, our full time ministry opportunity. Everything before that was part time and and kind of volunteer. So it was an exciting opportunity for me. And I remember getting into uh, uh, Valley's uh, prayer meetings, uh, staff prayer meetings, and and you wouldn't know this unless you went to different places. But it was a unique setting, and I didn't know. I didn't I didn't know until I moved in different places. But there's just this unique element to to how the staff prays at Valley. It, it, it's extremely rich. And so I remember going there, and within the first month, I, I think it was intentional that they kind of paired me up with different pastors. And I remember in that first month, I, I prayed with Pastor Phil, and then I prayed with Pastor Larry, and then I prayed with Pastor Sean. And I remember praying with Phil that first week. I think it was with him first. And how he prayed for my friends and my family members who didn't know Jesus. How he would call them out by name and he would say, Father, chase them down. Father, find them. Father, run after them. Father, call out to them in a way that they must come to you. Be the good shepherd and call out and he's doing it in tears. He doesn't know these people. He hardly knew me but it was as if they meant as much to him as they meant to me. And then I realized this wasn't unique. The next week, I prayed with Larry. It's the same exact thing. Praying by name for my friends and my family members who don't yet know Jesus and doing it in tears. And then I prayed with Sean and it was the same thing. Calling out by name my friends and family members who don't yet know Jesus and doing it with tears. This has always been Valley Bible Church. We always have run stride for stride with the Father, sprinting after lost sons and lost daughters. That has always been who we've been, and that will always be who we will be. We will always be running. We are not afraid of the area that we live in. We are not afraid of where culture is going. We are not afraid of where the world is going. We are not afraid of the statistics that say the Bay Area is the least Christianized place in the United States. We're not afraid that culture seems to be running away from the things of God. We're not afraid that it seems that the world is running away from the word of God. We're not afraid of those things. All it simply means is we're gonna run harder is that we're going to extend ourselves even more. We're not going to run away from the world. We're going to run towards it. We're going to match the Father at a scandalous pace. That has been Valley Bible Church. That will be Valley Bible Church. I think, honestly, when Jesus Christ was speaking to his first century disciples, when he specifically talks to Peter, Jesus envisions almost all of church history. And he says, Peter, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to build my church. Valley Bible Church is in that stream of churches that Christ builds. And Jesus says some very specific words to Peter. He says, Peter, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to build a church and the gates of hell will not prevail over it. They will not prevail against it. Now, what does that mean? We, we first read that and oftentimes what we do, we read that and we think, oh, this means that the church is going to stand up and all of Satan's attacks Won't do anything. We'll have a good defense. Well, it's true that the gates, right? That imagery is a defensive weapon. It's not an offensive weapon. Nobody has seen anybody in battle ever say, hey, grab your spear, grab your sword, and somebody go get the gates. Let's go charge the day. No, no, no. It is a defensive weapon. That's true. But notice what Jesus said. Whose defense is he talking about? He said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is saying Satan's defense is not good enough for our offense. What he's saying is I'm going to build a church that is going to run Stride for stride, sprinting after lost sons and daughters, advancing the line so aggressively, so passionately, so effectively, that Satan himself will shake because his gates are not strong enough. We will always run and we will not retreat. We will match the Father stride for stride, running after lost sons and lost daughters at a scandalous pace. Now maybe you're listening to this and you're watching this and you're thinking to yourself, you know, if I, if I sit for a moment and I look back at just the recent events or maybe peel back the recent months, maybe you say to yourself, you know, maybe God is pursuing me. Maybe God is calling me. Maybe as I'm even saying that, as I'm even speaking right now and you're watching this, you you can recall some events in your mind and you're thinking to yourself, maybe that event or that conversation or that encounter was not accidental. Friend, I think Jesus is calling you. I think the Father is calling you. Jesus said that His sheep know His voice. They hear it. He calls and they follow. Friend, I think you're watching this. I think you've made it this far in this service. Maybe you're like me, that you you had every reason to not believe and, and, and many reasons to hold on to doubt, but you couldn't shake, and you can't shake the spiritual. And you just can't get your mind off the notion of God, and you can't get your mind away from the teachings of Jesus. Friend, I think God is calling you. I think Jesus is calling you. And I pray today that you answer him. And you see, his call for you is that you would trust in his death and resurrection as your only means of forgiveness, that you would see what he's calling to you is back to a wonderful life under his protection and his provision when he gives you eternal life and fellowship with him. Not a life free of pain, but a life that is with him and a life that will endure for all eternity, absent of pain. My prayer is that you would answer the call of Jesus today and you would start following him today. Will you pray with me? Father, we love you. Father, we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that you chase us down. Father, that you did not wait for us to step toward you. But Father, you first stepped toward us. And you did not make a light step. You didn't slowly move. But like the hound of heaven, you pursued. And just as that father ran and shamed himself in public to embrace his son, O Father, we know it is your son that was shamed in public for us how scandalous that the perfect Son of God would die for us. How wonderfully, gloriously, graciously scandalous. Father, I pray for those who are on that edge of considering committing themselves to You O Father, I pray that they would come to You. They would see that You have made a way for them to be right with You. That the weight of their sin can be taken away by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, by His death and His resurrection. O Father, I pray, I pray they would respond to You. They would hear Your voice. They would know it and say to themselves, That's familiar to me. I haven't heard it in a while, but that's familiar to me. That's my Creator. That's my God. That's my Father. Father, I pray even right now that there is a a, a running, a chasing down, an embrace and a kiss that, that You are running toward people and right now, people are embracing You as well. Father, I pray that that is happening. It's in Christ's name I pray amen. Valley Bible Church, friends and family, thank you for joining us on our online platform here. We look forward to when we can gather uh, together, and we look forward to seeing you again as we close out this series. Thanks for joining us, guys.